In our first message in this series, we reviewed our creation story, a story of God bringing order into chaos. Last week, we saw how that wickedness almost overtook the entire earth, and how there were only eight people who survived in the end of God's judgment, Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Only they escaped the wickedness and the destruction that came upon the earth. But we ended last week in a beautiful place, remember? We ended where it said, and they were calling, there were some who were calling on the name of the Lord. We read about God setting his sign, his bow in the air as a sign of his covenantal promise. Noah and his family had found favor with God. He had lived his life in submission to God, doing what God wanted. We could say that was the hallmark of his life. He was submissive. Something was said of him that was really incredible. It doesn't get said very often in the Bible. The phrase that's used over and over is, he did everything the Lord commanded him to do. That's a big deal. Noah lived his life for God and not for himself. Noah did what God asked him to do. And then this happened. It's part of Genesis, the little section where the day is apart. We don't we don't always like to read it. it. It gets a little bit awkward, and even the things that we read today will feel a little awkward to us, I think. And yet it's in the book for a reason. I pick up in Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk. He lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. <laughs> All right, so that's an odd story. Maybe not something to dwell on, but it does remind us that even though Noah was faithful, he wasn't perfect. He gets drunk, he gets naked, and he gets embarrassed by one of his sons, a son who presumably thought it was more important to talk about his father's nakedness than to do something about it, like maybe covering him up. And Noah's response, Noah gets angry. He curses one of his sons. I don't know if you caught this, right? One of the things we don't hear about before the flood was slavery. It must have existed. Noah knew what it was, but he speaks slavery back into existence as a curse on his own child, because he was mad. 
but he praises his other sons. So much for a new beginning. Drunkenness, ridicule, family infighting, cursing. How quickly we went from that moment where everyone on the earth was praising God to a moment of brokenness. But it's a reminder, isn't it? These were real people, real issues. Noah was a man who struggled, who had issues, but he was also a man who God used to great purpose. The same thing could probably be said of many other people in the Bible that God used. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Yet it was also said of him that he was a man after God's own heart, imperfect but useful. Paul was overcome with a misguided zeal, a zeal that initially, when he was named Saul, made him passionate for God but an enemy of Jesus. Yet God transformed that zeal, and he helped Saul become Paul, and then Paul took God's message to the very heart of the Roman world. Matthew. Matthew had been a cheat. We might even call him a thief because he took more money than was due him when he collected the taxes. Probably not the person we would pick to write one of the most important gospels in the Bible, but that's who Jesus picked. He actually called them by name. Matthew, come on, follow me. And he transformed his life. Oh, the list is long. People who were imperfect and yet useful to God. People whose lives had plenty of chaos, but God brought clarity and purpose into their life. People like Joshua, the assistant to Moses, who when things went bad at the Battle of Ai, fell on the ground afraid and in fear. And yet God used Joshua to great effect and had him stand back up for he would truly be useful to God. Abraham was called by God and put his wife at risk, not once but twice with other men. Yet he's the father of a great nation that God used for great purpose. Moses let his temper get the best of him more than once, and well, Peter fell into trying to please people more than he cared about pleasing God for a while. We might ask, why does this happen? Why, why does it happen to them and why does it happen to us? And the answer is in one simple word, sin. <laughs> sin. They were all sinners before God used them. They all still had struggles with sin when God was using them. And after they had accomplished what God had for them to accomplish, they were still people who struggled with sin. Just like us. Yet God still worked with them. God still loved them. God still used them for his purpose. For God is a God of grace, a God of second chances and 70th chances. And then this happens. We jump forward in Genesis to chapter 11. And we look at our ancestors, our forebears, our origin story, and we look back and we see this other quirky story from Genesis. Another story where chaos gets used in an interesting way. 
Because in the next story, it's not so much about God making things clear in the beginning, but seemingly making them more chaotic. Listen to this story that almost seems to want to set itself up against our very sermon series. Instead of saying God brings clarity to the chaos, we'll see a story where it seems God brings chaos to the clarity. And I don't want to just ignore that. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 11. The whole earth had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar, and they settled there. And it tells us that on the bright side, basically, people were unified, they were working together, they shared a common language, a common focus, they enjoyed a common peace. You would think that would be a good thing in the days after Noah. People working together. They settled together in the land of Shinar, a region of Mesopotamia, near the Tigris and Euphrates River. Remember, if you go back and read your Genesis story of Eden, it was also presumably close to that vicinity, if these are the same rivers as existed before the flood. But they don't live in the Garden of Eden, but they live in a civilized place. It's livable, it's peaceable. So, they say to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let me, by the way, say this is not an anti-brick story. God's not against bricks. That's not the problem with the story. They use bricks instead of stone, and they use tar for mortar. Maybe not our first choice, but an effective one. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so, and this is important, so that we may make a name for ourselves. <laughs> so we can make a name for ourselves. A tower that reaches to the heavens. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Interesting pronouns they used. They, us, we, ourselves, not much talk of him or God or faith or prayer. There's no consulting God in their story. Oh, what's there is a lot of ego, a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance, an overwhelming sense of self. Let's do this great thing so people will remember us. Let's do this great thing so people will say, look what great things those people did. Their endeavor has nothing to do with God. Nothing. Everything they do, they want to do it for themselves. It was about doing what seemed good to them, what was right in their own eyes. They either assumed that God would want what they wanted, and we make that error sometimes. We think that if we want something, God must really want that thing too. But that's not always the case. We can want things that God doesn't want. Or, and I think the second's more likely, they just didn't care what God said about it. They didn't care what God thought about it. It didn't matter to them what God wanted. This tower was not being built for God's glory. It was being built for their glory. 
for themselves. It's a moment that's very much like what Eve did when she was deceived and told, you'll be like a god. We see in this story the masses that have one priority. Let's make a name for ourselves. We will be like God. Well, we'll be able to ascend into the heavens ourselves. We did it our way. Verse 5 says, the Lord came down to see the city. It's been interesting. I'm in a, a personal study where I'm trying to read through the entire Bible in 100 days. I just finished reading all of the books of Moses, the first five. And as I did that, I was impressed by something, how often God comes down and walks among people on the earth. It's fascinating that God does that. Not just in the story of the Garden of Eden, but he also comes down in this story. He comes down in the story of Abraham. He comes down later on when Moses is with the people, and he says, hey, make sure the camp is clean, because God's going to come down and walk among us through the Israelite camp. Make sure he doesn't see wickedness. It's fascinating. God coming down, it's not something new that he just did with Jesus and he did in the beginning. God wants to be connected to his creation. So God comes down to the earth to see the city, and he sees the tower that people are building. Now the Lord speaks, and he speaks to the rest of the Godhead. Christ and the Holy Spirit, if it's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this. Well, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. They stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language, the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. James, the half-brother of Jesus in James 4, 6, says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. When God does this act, this moment, to confuse their language, he does so because he recognizes that language has become something they have perverted, and the blessing of a common speech is a, something he feels they don't deserve. It's a privilege they don't deserve. For they have clarity in their speech and thinking, but their thoughts and, and their actions ignore God altogether. And hear this, friends. God will not be ignored. So coming down from heaven, he remains, removes their ability to communicate. Now, it's not a sign that God is vengeful. Rather, it's a show of God's authority, his response to their arrogance. They wanted to build a tower so great everyone would remember what they had done there. But do you get what it became? For it still stood halfway built to the heavens. They stopped building it, so it was a half-completed project. And when everyone looked at it, instead of thinking, look at the great things that man accomplished, what did they see? <laughs> look at the power of God. He stopped them in their tracks. They were reminded of what God did there, not what man had done. Indeed, in that moment, God highlighted their lack of understanding and knowledge. For a person can believe they are knowledgeable and wise enough to build many great things and accomplish great things, but if God is not in them, it is not a wise decision to do them. They had come to ruin. I would also tell you that 
this comes on the heels of God having just disciplined the entire earth with judgment. Part of God's act here was one of mercy. For he saw that mankind was once again headed on a trajectory that was anti-God and pro-self and was headed for destruction. So he intervened. He confused their speech. In this particular instance, God uses chaos to push people to a clearer sense of who God is and who they are. But I want you to know something about this story. This story is a story that also has a follow-up story. There's another part to this story, an answer, a rebuttal, a, a response to this story, but it doesn't happen in Genesis. Indeed, it doesn't happen anywhere in the Old Testament. But the moment where God confuses speech has a reversal moment where God makes speech, all speech, understandable. Now, some people might think, well, that's just recently happened. Since we have these new devices on our smartphone where we can listen to someone who's speaking Italian or they're speaking Chinese or, or speaking some, some French, they can speak another language, we can hold of our phone, our phone listens and translates what they say. And we think, well, wow, the Tower of Babel has been reversed. We did that. Aren't we great? And I got to say, that is a really cool technology. But the truth is that God reversed Babel 2,000 years ago, almost. Listen to the story of the reversal moment where God no longer confuses speech, but he makes it so they can understand speech. I told you all along that God ultimately brings clarity into chaos. In this story today, we see God had brought chaos so that it could bring clarity. But now, once again, in this story we see God restoring clarity and removing the confusion that comes from speaking different languages. Listen to the story from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and following. When the day of Pentecost had come, this is after Jesus has lived, died, been buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, this story actually happens 50 days after Jesus had died on the cross. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That is, the disciples are all together. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, that is, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were, there were staying in Jerusalem because it was a feasting time. Jews, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. Huh, interesting. All the peoples had been divided and separated, but they had come back for a festival. And they heard the sound. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, read this carefully, because each one heard their own language being spoken. They were utterly amazed. And they asked each other, 
aren't all these people who are speaking just Galileans? It's, I don't mean to pick on anybody. You can pick whatever state you think is backwards. Uh, some people, I went to, to Missouri one day, and they said, we don't want to act like a bunch of Hoosiers. So they really picked on us. They said we were the backward state. Some people say it's Kentucky or West Virginia. You pick, okay? When they said it was, they were Galileans, they were making fun of the geography where they came from, saying, well, those folks, just are, they're not very smart. That was the implication. That's what they said. So how is it that these people who are unschooled and unlearned, how could they speak our language? That's the question. How are they all knowing and how are they speaking with, and it says they're speaking my native language, it implies they're even getting the accent right. That's what it implies. They're even getting the accent right. How are they doing that? They were utterly amazed. They were in bewilderment. They were confused by what they were seeing. There were Parthians there, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. By the way, that's where Babel had started. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And they all said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. With one speech before, they had declared their own wonder they were building. On the day of Pentecost, they're declaring the wonder of God. And everyone can understand. God has reversed the confusion of language. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Clarity has returned. Why? For what purpose? Why has God ended the division of, of speech? And why has he enabled the, the church as it's about to be born? Why is he enabling them to, to have a common understanding? Because God's building something far greater than a tower. Babel in its construction maybe lasted but a few years. As a ruin maybe lasted for a couple of millennia before it faded into nothingness and obscurity. But what God's going to build on this day, it's going to last until he returns. And then, friends, check this out. <laughs> it's just going to find a new location, and it's going to last forever. That's what he was building. That's what happens on that day. Clarity returns, and Peter preaches to the confused we pick up his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, where he says these words to them. Listen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. But this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. And foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, King David, had said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You'll not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. And after he had quoted David, Peter continued saying, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this very day. But David was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on an oath he would place one of David's descendants of the throne. And Peter says, seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. For God raised Jesus to life. We're witnesses of it. He exalted him to the right hand of God. He, was, he, rece he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And jumping forward to verse 36, he concludes this way. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, and they all heard it in their own language, they were cut to their hearts. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Hmm. This is the question that the people of Babel did not ask. They did not ask God what we should do. And their speech was confused. When God made it so they could understand, what question did they immediately ask? What are we supposed to do? What's right? And what he told them is what he tells us. Well, here's how you get right with God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. I like verse 40, with many other words, but these were not words of confusion, but words of clarity. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day, not held together by tar, not built on bricks, but held together by the Holy Spirit and built upon the rock. Both the rock that was Peter, who was the one Jesus said he would build his church upon, but also built upon Jesus Christ, our sure foundation. He was building something new. Unity was restored to its proper role and function that day. For unlike their forebears, listen and see what these like-minded believers with a common understanding and a common purpose accomplished together. We read verse 42, and this is what the church was meant to be. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were very curious to continually ask, what is it that God wants us to do? They committed themselves to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
And I want you to get this. Don't miss this. I'll come back to it later today. But prayer is the rocket fuel that grows the church, friends. That makes the church go. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, just like they had been so long ago. They had everything in common. And filling and following God's purposes, they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. And every single day they would meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. <laughs> Clarity returns. I love that story because... God disciplines those he loves. And we see repeatedly across the Bible, God at times gets pretty firm with us. I don't know about you, sometimes God has to get pretty firm with me to get my attention. But he doesn't do it because he wants to give us a good, a good shaking or a good moment of, hey, come to Jesus, so-called. He does it because he loves us. He wants what's best for us. When the end comes, he wants us to be a part of those that are with him forever, not those that have chosen to be away from him forever. So the question for us is, are we, are we as willing to listen to his voice as they were on the day of Pentecost? Or are we more prone to act like our forebears back at Babel, who weren't listening to God or seeking him. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy take us to the time of Joshua. After centuries have passed, Joshua says to the people an important thing. He says, listen, choose you this day which way you're going to go, who you're going to follow. You're going to follow the gods of your ancestors, the gods of the land. You can do it your own way and do what's right in your own eyes. Or are you going to follow the Lord? And Joshua's role model example as a leader was, as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. So who are you following? And the things that you build in your life, are you building things for the Lord or for yourselves? I don't know how those questions hit you, but they make me think. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, make the decision that Peter asked them to make so long ago as we stand and we sing together our hymn of invitation.